0: For December twenty sixth, twenty sixteen, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode four hundred forty three. I knew that galaxy when it was long ago and far away. overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out with each other and talking about the things we love. And boy, have we had uh, a great time these last couple of weeks because we have been talking about Rogue One and we're going to keep talking about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Not Star Wars Rogue One, but Rogue One A Star Wars story uh, in this podcast. We're in the thick of the holidays now and whatever ones that you happen to celebrate, I hope they are wonderful for you. Um, And I hope that uh, talking about Star Wars provides uh, uh, a much needed break uh, if you need one from the relentless holiday happiness or uh, is something that you can uh, set aside for a, uh, a calmer time to enjoy later at your leisure. So uh, happy holidays to you all over the world, uh, the community of overthinkers, and thanks for spending another year with overthinking it. All right, I'm your host, Matt Rather, and here is the question of the week for our panelists. Panelists. We have seen in Star Wars And it's been taken to a ridiculous extreme In this film uh, That any planet in Star Wars Can only be one thing The desert planet of Tatooine The ice planet Hoth The forest moon of Endor The uh, tropical beach Island paradise of the Imperial Archive um, That, uh, that every, uh, every Planet is not really planet sized With it's own climate zones And different ecological zones know the planet is one thing and we've also seen uh that people seem to be stationed on just the worst uh most hostile um most uh uh, depressing planets that, that they can possibly find right like no uh um, you know, no imperial installations on Queen Amidala's world. Uh, no, uh, no one living on, uh, the, the pleasure planet of Risa. Oh, wait, that's the wrong franchise. Never mind. So, uh, since once we're all conscripted by the Empire, since they are going to send us all, uh, just to the, the worst possible, uh, planet, question for you this week, panel. What, is your worst-case assignment from the Empire. What planet could you be sent to uh, that would just be, uh, just be hell on Earth? Not on Earth. Hell on whatever planet you're on for you. First in the alphabet, drink. It's not Pete Fenzel. It's our friend Ben Adams.
1: Hey, Matt. So uh, I think, in, similar to Endor, that, that my planet is defined by a particular type of plant. Uh, and I, I don't want the Emperor to send me to the Poison Ivy planet, Ooh. Uh, because I am terribly allergic and so that would basically just means I can't go outside.
0: Yeah, that right. Exactly. And, and like when you do, you have to wear bubble wrap or something like that. Exactly. Around, you know? yeah,
1: and then just or just burn all my clothes every time I, I you know come back inside
2: Oof, space. It's suits. actually what the stormtrooper outfits originally did.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess I against... could be a stormtrooper. That's <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs>
2: the only thing they actually protect against is poison ivy and poison sumac (laughs) oak is right out
0: (laughs) (laughs) next in the alphabet matt belinky matt where is your long assignment going to take you
3: you know i sort of feel like these single-use planets come dangerously close to the universe depicted in futurama where where everything is like they're always making deliveries to these planets where like the slurm is produced on the slurm planet and that's all the slurm planet does um i feel like for it to be an exact analog to rogue one it has to be uh you have to have a unique skill that you used to love you have come to hate and the empire is going to set you to a place where you have to do it forever um so for me it would be uh knowing all the words to and so they would send me to 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 les miserables the les miserables planet which would be a clever french pun and i think the weather would be variable but the constant the the thing that makes les mis les mis is it has a turntable that goes around so this planet would actually revolve the entire planet, which would in fact make it no different than any other planet. <laughs> maybe, maybe the twist is that it revolves in the opposite direction, like a, like it, re- it has an internal rotation, like a, like the empire has built a machine that revolves it against its own orbit, and so it in fact doesn't revolve at all. But it's like extraordinarily complex and expensive to to
0: make it do that. Okay, like a like a Broadway musical in that sense, it's, right? It's so
1: uh, is that planet two four six zero one.
0: Oh,
2: there
0: you go. See, yeah, <laughs> That's next right next there. in the alphabet, it's Pete Fenzel.
2: I was just envisioning a wall that just had one day more written on the top and then a whole bunch of hash marks carved into <laughs> the wall for all the days you've been there. Um, so I actually got a very vivid and very specific vision when you said this. And I was imagining a planet that a food supply planet that was meant for herding and raising uh, livestock. And these livestock are kind of bovine turtles. Uh, they have hard shells and they have very sharp beaks, and they are tremendously dangerous. And they will eat you, uh, but you shouldn't go near them. And uh, and and in the planet, you could live in like a house or even a house on stilts or you'd like go to work in an office uh-huh. but everywhere you went would be the incessant snapping and and clipping of the beaks of the of the the man-eating turtles that would just be everywhere uh, and, and it just I was just imagining like much like the sort of constant lightning and sharp crags that seemed to be around the research institutes I feel like I've had a special kind I don't know if you guys I'm from the the Burbs. I grew up in the Burbs. If you guys have ever gone out somewhere near like a swamp or a sound like at night and just heard that wave of animal noise of the whether it's the frogs or the crickets or whatever's out there in the darkness having its own sort of Matrix Revolutions Zion disco party out in the darkness, right? Like uh, like out in the swamp and it just wave of noise hits you. Few things unsettle me more than the idea that there is a dangerous animal making a lot of noise. On the other side of the wall, where I'm sleeping. Pete, I
0: thought that um, you, I, I seriously thought that you were describing the the uh, the beaked creatures in pitch black, and that, oh,
2: maybe. Uh, <laughs> yes, and pitch that, black planet. <laughs> Except it's not a problem, and everybody's fine. That that's how it is. That's that's if you were on pitch black planet, but it was like, come on, focus on your work. And there's just like crazy beaked bat monsters that are just everywhere, out right outside the door. And you're like, come on, they don't get inside. <laughs> the pizza guy has a bubble car; quickly, he'll be quickly, fine. Quickly. <laughs> click, 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 kind of click, click,
0: click. Mark Lee is next in the alphabet.
2: Uh, mine isn't weather
4: related; it's actually flavor related. Um, are you guys familiar with the flavor, the spice called anise? A N I S E. Sure,
0: <laughs> sure. Crossword uh, puzzle. It takes it's like a. Right. It takes like. Black licorice, <laughs> right? It's yeah, a little it's black bit like licorice. licorice. Yeah. Yeah, somewhere along the years,
4: uh, I developed an extreme dislike for this. And unfortunately, it's in Chinese. a lot of Chinese food, um, which uh, is important to uh, my wife, who is Chinese-American. Uh, and a lot of the cuisine uh, of her people uh, has this flavor in it. So uh, I couldn't imagine a world where essentially I smell it everywhere. It's in all of the food that I have to eat. Um, and it would make me extremely miserable. I've actually been to that place. It's called Taiwan. Um, so if you don't like anise, don't go to Taiwan. I'm only half joking in that um, uh, only about half the food that I'm presented with in Taiwan has anise. The rest of it is uh, is reasonably palatable. Um, but I'm imagining an entire planet of which um, it's imagined – like the spice mines of Kessler, right? Oh, no. Be sent to smash in the spice mines of anise. Oh, worse.
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
0: All right. <laughs> <Heebie-jeebies>. Mine is <laughs> – mine is um my you know i i have two uh uh well i have many terrible qualities but two that that um, combine to form uh, just a perfect storm of terribleness uh, i i sweat readily like i, I schwitz like a hazer, and and uh, I also have sensitive pink baby skin that chafes very easily so i would go to the humidity planet of uh of like Florida in august or something like that you know so so I would go to the tropical, uh, humid planet and I would not like, uh, I would not be able to leave the air conditioned and humidified pods uh that we did our work in because if i if i went my clothes would st- stick to my skin and i would become one giant chafing rash uh all all over me oh it's uh it's got it's it's putting me off uh, a trip to hawaii i i can't uh, i just can't go to uh to where it's uh, to where it's hot and humid and and sweaty all the chafing the chafing 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 um but uh fortunately we don't have to go to any of those places. We are going to the uh interstellar world of Rogue One. but first, before we do uh hey the the holidays um may be underway or over, depending on on uh what your particular pattern of celebrating is. But uh, the gift guide is forever. And specifically, the gift guide is for returning things that your family who doesn't understand you bought you and uh, replacing them with things that you're overthinking at friends who do understand recommend. That's right. We compiled a whole list of gift recommendations for this holiday season. And uh, if, if no one in your life got you anything on our list, that's okay. Send whatever they got you back to Amazon uh, as much as you love them and uh, get, get something from the overthinking it gift guide the uh, the gift guide and the affiliate revenue that that we get from it is a very important promotion for us every year um, we like to make it fun and I like to joke about it as a cynical cash grab but it's it 's more than that it 's something that gives us a big jolt right around the end of the year and the beginning of the next year when we need it and we appreciate uh, that for the entire life of overthinking it um, the global community of overthinkers has uh, has taken our recommendations has uh, supported the site in this particular way so this is your last holiday plug for the overthinking it gift guide thanks very much for supporting us by uh by using it. All right. Uh, let's dive back into Rogue One. Last week, we talked about, uh, a number of things. We talked about, uh, the title. Uh, we talked about some new information we have about the rebels, the empire, the force. We talked about father figures. We talked about, uh, the, the ultimate kind of, the, the ultimate kind of moral or message of the film, uh, talking about the ends justifying the means or the, the, uh, sort of tactics in war versus the, the, uh, noble aims of your, uh, of your faction, but there's still, and, and if you'd like to hear any more of that, uh, stuff and you haven't heard last week's podcast, you can just go back. It's the one before this one in the feed. Um, but, uh, there's still so much more to talk about in rogue one. And I feel like we have to start, uh, right back at the very beginning. Pete, can you tell us a little bit about the first shot, of Rogue One, a Star Wars story, and how it relates to other first shots in the uh, the Star Wars universe and what it might tell us about this film.
2: Sure. When you're hearing about ideas of tone, in particular, in kind of film criticism and kind of particularly kind of like trying to explain basic uh, film studies to people. The first scene is Star Wars. The first shot of Star Wars is often brought up as establishing the tone and the kind of general idea of the movie, right? Which is that there's a big ship and there's a little ship and you know everything that you need to know about the movie from the big empire and the little rebel ship, right? That That's on screen. And we've seen other Star Wars movies make similar sorts of statements. Uh, Force Awakens in particular had like a dark ship that was kind of cutting through the earth, Right uh, In the beginning, there was this weird triangle. Of course, we have Spaceballs, which has the giant ship that goes on for 10 minutes, which kind of uh, parodies all these things. But in uh, Rogue One, we have a tiny ship and a big planet. And that, to me, felt like a really strong mission statement about the tone of the movie, kind of what the movie was about. Uh, I mean, we talked last week a lot about rogues, so I'm not gonna go into that now. But just this idea of the world being this huge thing, and the world being kind of the universe, being a planet, and the ship being this really tiny thing. And the people in Rogue One being small people who are subjected to kind of great events, great circumstances, and also a vast world that kind of crushes them with its complexity, uh, or not its complexity, but just the, its scope, right? And the, the, it's greater than any one person has the ability to do anything about it. I mean, what do you guys think of that? Do you guys have any reactions to that initial, initial shot?
3: You know, Pete, it's very interesting. I, I think it might be critical that the ship... It's not just any ship, but an imperial ship, Mm -hmm. because we've talked uh, on overthinking it way before this movie came out about the political problem that the Death Star is meant to solve, which is mainly that the galaxy is too big to have direct control over. And in fact, there's a line that that I think we, we, we have come back to numerous times in our various overthinkings from the very first Star Wars, where they're talking about the the political, right, the the, yep. the, the political, and we, we talked about it last week, about how the regional governors are gonna have direct control, and that it's fear that are gonna keep the local systems in line. And so the opening shot of the movie, it, it seems to me that like there are these vast distances that dwarf the empire, and I think it's critical that even when the ship lands, it has to land like a half a mile away from the hut that they're trying, and they have to walk across these endless fields to get there, and it's just exhausting. And then when they have to find this one little girl it's super easy. I mean, she has this Heidi hole all prepared. But there's this there's this idea that like this planet is so big that we can't even hope to control this one little planet. How could we control the whole galaxy? But then the the, the so the empire scales up, and then later in the movie we see this Star Destroyer hovering above a city. And that's an improvement, but that's not sufficient. And what it really takes is this thing that can really like, you know, that looms in the sky like a moon and has the power to destroy an entire planet. And it's only when you get to that scale that you can actually hope to control to right. to win.
4: Yeah. Also, speaking of scale, you have the uh, starter stories, which are seen as massive in other scenes and then are dwarfed. By the Death Star itself, I think a lot of people have commented that director Gareth Edwards is particularly good at depicting scale in a visual way, because remember the film that made him really big was uh, Godzilla, right right big wizard well,
0: and this, yeah. is, this is the thing that Star Wars does, right like the the new and improved Death Star was bigger than the old Death Star, and then Star base in uh, in the Force awakens is I mean they even do it uh, it 's almost a funny moment when it's like this was the old death Star. <laughs> is star killer base it's so uh it's so huge i mean yeah there's a whole i i don't know i feel like matt brings up a whole host of problems in the kind of world building of the the star wars universe and it's i don't know we we demand a different kind of world building than was uh than was current I mean, honestly, I don't know, in film, Star Wars may have started this off. So it's not like uh, we can necessarily blame George Lucas initially for not having all of these internal inconsistencies worked out. But the, um, you know, but like uh, there are a number of problems there.
2: (laughs) But to to touch back on this, like, it's really interesting that Matt. I really like this idea that the Empire ships that are hovering above the planets get bigger and bigger as the movie progresses because the other thing about the evil ship is the Empire ship is that it's – I think it's either the same or a very similar ship to the ship that Rogue Rogue One takes – to land on the uh, archive planet, yeah, it's
0: right? so. Rogue One doesn't have the vertical stabilizer right. on, on top. It has <laughs> and it has two sets of horizontal stabilizers, but the, the horizontal stabilizers still uh, still uh, fold up to form a triangle, uh, which you know completely comports with my theory that Star Wars is is a story about circles and triangles and uh, and triangular things impinging upon circular things. Right, right, right.
1: Well, this well, this movie had a lot of very important cargo ships. I mean, <laughs> if, if previous I mean, if previous movies really got into, like, the X-Wings and the Y-Wings. Like, you know, Rogue One is a cargo ship. You know, that's a really badass call sign. But in, in the end of the... So it, is the Millennium Falcon. The, the final equation. Exactly. Like, what's really interesting, that the planes that just take stuff from A to B end up being most important uh, ships, to some extent, in, in the franchise. Because that's what... Uh, Krennic takes to the planets that's that first ship we get it's also you know we have our defecting shuttle pilot uh, and then we have the you know Rogue One is a shuttle plane that's stolen and then you know taken out
0: yeah freight cargo moving supplies around there's a trade alliance in the in the prequel trilogy right Ooh,
2: they should make a movie that focuses on the trade federation <laughs> that would be
1: great <laughs> I mean to, to be fair there's, a, there's an old saying in, uh, in military circles that uh, amateurs discuss tactics uh Professionals discuss logistics because like 99% of warfare is effectively moving people and parts to the point of conflict. And then there's just the 1% left of actually fighting people.
4: There's also the aspect of moving information from point A to point B, right? Which is very important in this movie. Matt, do you want to tee us up
0: for that conversation? Well, thank you, Mark. That's a, uh, you know <laughs> speaking of moving physical Smooth. things <laughs> of physical things. Wow. can we just do a, can we just do a wipe like in a Star Wars movie, like uh da 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 um
1: And star wipe and we're out.
0: Yeah. Uh the um Some pretty good wipes, by the way, in, uh, in The Force Awakens. When we recorded our overview commentary on it, I was noticing the wipes. I'm not sure we commented on them at the time, but they did, they did register for me. There were fewer of them in, in this film, or at least they didn't, they didn't stand out in, uh, in quite the same way right like so it it is odd that the the death star the kind of the bigger and bigger ship oh and by the way uh, we've seen destroyers in space uh imperial destroyers in space i um i I didn't know that they had anti-gravity like we've seen x-wings uh operate in a Planet's atmosphere, but I always assumed that that's because of of aerodynamics and and wings and uh, their thrust, their propulsion. I thought they were doing it like. uh, I thought they were I thought they were doing it uh, you know by going fast, like uh, fighter planes, um, but the uh, the star destroyer just uh, hovering in the air was was a new thing for me so from that to the death star hovering over the planet, it seems like uh, this should work, but it it actually probably wouldn 't given how bad the information transfer is, like how bad the fidelity of uh, of transmitting knowledge, history, communications uh, across the vast distances of space. And given how easy it is to sort of hand wave away, um, like jumping to, uh, jumping uh, into hyperspace and then just emerging seconds later at the place where you intended to go, you'd think that it actually might be possible to just send a guy to tell you everything, right? You don't even need Wi-Fi. You can just send an actual messenger in a couple of seconds to everywhere. Uh, But no, in Force Awakens, uh, Ray thinks that Luke Skywalker is a myth here uh there's all kinds of information that doesn't that doesn't make it um you know that doesn't make it around you know there's no uh there's no literacy per se there doesn't seem to be written language we don't really see people reading not even the jedi uh not even the jedi read um so what, what, I mean, what are we to make of this world where it's possible to kind of snap your fingers and be in the thick of bat- battle wherever you please in the galaxy? Uh, and you can't, uh, you can't just, you know, transmit a simple email with an attachment of the Death Star plans, you know, from point A to point B.
3: Yeah, I mean, it it definitely strikes. I mean, look, I think the the outer world answer here is that this universe was conceived in the '70s. This is before the internet existed, and so there's no WikiLeaks. There's no sort of network communication um, in the world of today. Once the Death Star plans were discovered, if you could broadcast the signal, it would be instantly everywhere and impossible to put that genie back in the bottle. But in this one, even when the the signal is broadcast out. It's not as if all the rebel ships have it. It's one rebel ship gets it, burns it to a CD, and transfers, you know, so it's still very much, even when it's, it's broadcast, it still goes back to being this physical media immediately, which I think honestly is, is, um, it, it seems like an artifact of when it was conceived, but certainly helps with certain types of storytelling that, I mean, I think, I think a good thing to put it against is if anybody remembers, uh, the movie serenity, uh, based on the TV show, I was about to
0: say you can't have a yeah. serenity solution to a star Wars problem,
3: right? I mean, without, without giving away all the spoilers for serenity, the climax is something similar. Where the, where the crew has information, and the information needs to get out there. And if the information is out there, the problem is solved, or, or the victory is achieved. And it and it's uh, they're trying to get to a, a transmitter. And once this is transmitted. It's sort of like it, it doesn't matter like who specifically gets it, because if anybody gets it, then everybody gets it. Um, and that's not the world that Star Wars is in. You have to transmit it to one particular person and then hope that person can get it to a second person and 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 can can sort of telephone it to the right to the right, uh, you know, the eventual destination.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is also, by the way, the plot of uh, the 1995 film Johnny Mnemonic starring Keanu Reeves, uh, where I I think Ice-T, right? Right, is uh, is responsible for transmitting the information that has been stored in johnny mnemonic 's head out to uh, out to a waiting world, and it is this sort of post it is this you know william Gibson sort of um, cyberspace uh, cyberspace mentality but no even the even the um, i guess they 're referred to as tapes right in in the film so so it is like a 1970s uh archival you know storage technology that the um uh, that the the information is being stored on in those sort of bays where you pull it out uh of the of the imperial data center
3: yeah. You know, I just, I just want to quickly hit on something uh, you were saying, Matt, earlier about the distances and about being able to, to get anywhere super easily. And I feel like here's the thing, like in previous Star Wars they've been kind of vague on how long it takes to get a place like you look back to the very first one. How long does it take to get from Tatooine to um, to uh, Alderaan, where they're trying to get on the Millennium Falcon? It's hard to say. That could be a day or two, or it could be minutes. It could,
1: could be a couple parsecs. You know, we don't know. Right,
3: exactly. However many that is. Um, but I certainly think in this in this movie, uh, they're sitting at the Rebel Base. They hear some chatter over the radio that there's a battle currently in progress. And they will jump in the ships and get there seemingly within minutes, almost in real time. And I feel like that changes the universe. Maybe not for the better. And, and I blame J.J. Abrams for it. Because even though he wasn't directly involved in this movie or he wasn't i, I don't he, he may be a credited producer. I think he's certainly involved when the movie was being conceived. He's part of the brain Trust at the studio, and I do not like what he did to transporting in the Star Trek movies that he was in charge of where he made it possible to to not only beam to a distant ship going at warp speed in the opposite direction but in the second Star Trek somebody brings, he beams uh, from Earth to the Klingon planet literally directly from one planet to another, which I think it, 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 it solves so many problems and makes transportation so easy that it almost like makes it difficult to tell a story because you can imagine a million solutions to every problem via beaming something across the galaxy instantaneously. And I feel like that there's a little bit of that, that, that they remove some of the constraints that existed in the universe in a way that maybe takes some of the fun out of storytelling.
2: It certainly seems to cash it out a little bit like it limits the space like you can do that if you have a story that you know you want to tell and you're trying to make that story get told as economically as possible. But once you run out of stories that are kind of pre-approved that you're just looking to adapt and you're trying to come up with new stories, that creates a whole bunch of problems in terms of creating tension and determining things, right? Like it seems like with that all of a sudden all sorts of other things that could happen can't happen. And all sorts of other problems can't have would have instant solutions.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's there's an inconsistency, right? Like the the issue is that there's an inconsistency, right? Like because uh, they they are true to the original conception of the technology uh, in certain ways, you know, it, and it's it's sort of 70s based. If it were today based, it would look like Black Mirror. It wouldn't look like uh, Star Wars, right? But then, but then uh, in other ways, they kind of sell that out, especially in the kind of the the instantaneous travel of Distance, but one one place they don't sell it out is some of the communications technology, right?
1: Right. I mean, the technologically, all, pretty much all the communications technology in this film is kind of old school. They look, look almost like World War II style radios. Uh, there's even like you know, kind of radio humming and stuff that you get. Uh, and, and in fact, I think this is the first movie where you get an intercepted radio transmission that ends up being important for the plot, implying that there's actually just weight. It's not just some like magical hyperbeam that there is some sort of, you know, signal going out that the, the bad guys can or the good guys can find and intercept.
0: Uh, the you mean near the near the end. Uh, right. And 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 this is sort of this goes alongside the uh this goes alongside the sort of holographic communication. I mean, why not? And and we know that we have real-time holographic communication as well in in the original trilogy, right? Like so why uh why not just to communicate by hologram all you know all the time? Wouldn't it be I don't know. Wouldn't it be better, uh, or wouldn't it be like less cumbersome? I was thinking about this when when uh, um, Cassian was was. Putting on, uh, sitting in the pilot's chair and putting on a headset, right? And it's like, isn't there a smaller, lighter headset? Isn't there an option? Like, one of the big functions of headphones in small aircraft uh, is to drown out noise um and and make make it so that you can actually hear the the thing that's why you have those big cans that are sort of over-ear over-ear cans like you know there's not a lot of space noise from interstellar travel is there like so why not why not just use the uh uh why not just use the earbuds that that came with the spaceship you know
4: like a wireless bluetooth headset yeah i think that's 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 a prequel uh, aesthetic choice right compared yeah. to yeah the- <laughs> The 70s uh, original trilogy and now the the, the rebooted uh, choice, right? And also just like it's very much connected, I think, to this notion of uh, this is a gritty war movie, right? I mean, I, I saw a lot of like Vietnam era helicopter pilots in uh, in, the, in in the imagery of. Ah, uh, the pilots putting on headsets and people shooting out of doors and things like that—just like lots of dirtiness, lots of lots of grittiness—and then it requires just like you know, kind of staticky radios and and big headsets. Uh, it's 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 part of the aesthetic of the movie and the mood they're trying to create.
2: I, I also felt like there was a that this movie couldn't have been made too much sooner than it was because there was a cool way in which a lot of the 70s aesthetic feels like it's come around again. Like particularly the slim vests that I thought were really nice that everybody had, right? The sort of the 70s vests with the Purina dog chow logos on them (laughs) for some reason. Like 70s Barristan Selmy looked great. Right with his like swept hair and stuff like that. I felt like there was a certain, dare I say it, kind of millennial DIY ethos to the way that that Casey and, and Jin and their crew kind of like hung out with their rough and tumble analog technology that felt sort of it didn't feel dated to me. In, in the way that it would have felt dated if I think if it had been in the prequels, just because of the way that that is kind of baked into just because of the, the font choices. And so many of the restaurants I go to just seem to reflect
1: that kind of aesthetic, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's there. <laughs> I say it, dare I use the word it's, it's hipster. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. they're, they're listening to the music on vinyl.
0: Yeah, yeah it's true. It, it definitely I, is. I, I knew that galaxy
2: all... when it was long ago and far, far away. Right.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, is there more, uh, I mean, is there more about this film that is contemporary, uh, than, than some of the, the style choices of the, um, uh, some of the style choices of the of the costume designer, like, and, and the production design? I mean, the question I'm, I'm, uh, interested in asking is, uh, is this movie woke? I mean, is, is this, uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens? The, um. <laughs> So, sorry, we've been sitting on that one. Um, <laughs>
2: I just think of it movie be Titan AE, except it's Titan AF.
0: Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, right? Like th- this is a movie for RN in a certain way, um, and and I I think that there's uh, to to a certain extent there is a. Um, uh, a contemporary flair to some of the uh to some of the depiction of uh like insurgent warfare uh the the relationship of of the empire to the the terrain that they're in um and and then there were just some buzzwords right that that you heard uh order terror extremists um as a, a, in addition to the kind of the longstanding uh fascism of the um uh, of the Empire and the kind of the the you know the symbolism of that like uh th- is there uh i mean is it uh is this is this fair to say that this is a uh that this is a woke uh star Wars movie
4: I think it's political i'll leave it to others to try to decode the definition of woke because i don 't particularly feel comfortable uh trying to do that I'm I'm roughly familiar with it but I think I suspect others are more so um it is certainly in dialogue with these uh political ideas of the moment right that I mentioned last week the Syrian civil war you um, know, we talked about these ideas of insurgents, and you know, that's like foreign occup- occupiers that are stripping an area of natural resources and um, and uh, disrespecting the local indigenous religion. You could say that that's a that's a commentary on American imperialism in the Middle East. Um, but you know, the, these they're, they're all kind of being spoken to in little. Bits and pieces here and there. It is definitely not a political allegory by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, the other th- the political aspect of this movie that comes to mind is uh, probably more of an accident than anything else. But all the talk of you know resisting tyranny and you know standing up for your beliefs and just you know giving it all for the cause and it, it unfortunately remind, you know, gave a lot of thought to me about um, uh, you know how a lot of folks are talking about the, the post Trump. United States and how, um, you know, this idea of we must resist Trump and there's this idea of like, you know, we're all like um, joining this rebel alliance against Trump. So that was a, that that might be what uh, a certain wokeness to this movie. But those are sort of the political connections that came to mind here. Not necessarily one po- coherent political statement, but um, a variety of statements that do connect to the broader world. And maybe that is woke.
3: Hmm. I mean, I think I think the maybe the most obvious way that the movie could be considered woke is that both of the more recent Star Wars movies since Disney acquired them have uh, female leads. And not just uh, female leads, but female leads that are very much action heroes. And even more than that, female leads that are action heroes who don't really have any romance, right? Who are not fighting for love and don't sort of fall in love and couple up. I mean, you know, just little hints of it in both movies. But, you know, these, these are, you know, well-written, fully realized female protagonists. So that, And that, that's a great thing because I think that's something that has been a little dodgy in previous um, Star Wars movies. Um, I do... I'm, I'm very interested in what you guys thought about Donnie Yen's character, uh, Chirrut. Chir- Chirrut? I think it was Chirrut. Um, who was both a, kind of a scene-stealer, right? Like, very much, like, a very unique character, had some great action moments, uh, but also was, like, in a lot of ways, a very stereotypical character, where he is basically a Kung Fu monk. Um, and so that, like, while while he... I mean, I, you know, I, I, I certainly enjoyed him in this movie in a way that like, you know, is this a, is this a, a an unwoke moment? No, where, and Matt, it's, the, like- it's
0: the force. It's totally different. It's, <laughs> it's a totally different thing if it's the force and if it's just some, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, I guess it is some sort of ancient principle. Let's say it's from the east of the galaxy. I don't know. Uh <laughs>
2: I
4: mean, I think I, it's interesting. Go go for it. Go for it. If you want to. Sure. As the, as the resident uh, Asian person on the podcast. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I know you didn't say that. I just it. was I courteous. Saying, <laughs> I am saying, you know, oh, gosh, you know, this is kind of a minefield of a conversation thing. But the thing that first and foremost comes to mind with the casting of Donnie Yen and to a lesser extent, Wen Jung is that these are two actors who have a lot of name recognition in uh, a certain part of the world. Oh, let's call it China, where there's a huge movie audience that doesn't have the same um, a long relationship with Star Wars and needs to be introduced to all these movies for the first time and Putting a uh, noted Hong Kong uh, uh, based uh, actor like Donnie Yen, although I think he also grew up in the United States, um, uh, but putting an actor like Donnie Yen in this movie makes it uh, uh, a lot more relatable for for that audience. And uh, is the you know, if you want to read into it and if you want to take a dim view of it and say that it's a stereotypical Asian role of a monk and and these sort of things and he's not able to be uh, fully realized, I guess you could do that. But I am not so inclined to do so uh, for reasons that most all, particularly uh, are, relate to the fact that Diego Luna and uh, Riz Ahmed, uh, who are actors of color from different um, ethnicities and, and, and cultures, have fully realized characters and, you know, and are not so much like, you know, uh, uh, you know slave to ethnic stereotypes. Um, so I'm willing to give uh, Donna Yen a pass in that regard, I suppose. <laughs>
2: And I think one thing that's that one thing that struck me about it, right, is that it's a symbian circle, right? As as Qui Gon Jinn and uh, Ewan McGregor would explain to us between Star Wars movies and East Asian cinema, right? Uh, broadly speaking, uh, because the Star Wars movies pull heavily from like Kurosawa. Now, of course, Donnie Yen not Japanese, right? But then again, Donnie Yen's character in this movie, when I think about you know who what what fictional character. Does this blind this blind wandering, you know, kind of Jedi, former former pseudo-Jedi monk guy remind you of more than anybody else? I mean, I think my, I saw the remake with you back in New York when it first Itachi, came out. Zatashi, right? Yeah, Zatoichi, right? The blind swordsman, yeah. right? Uh, is it Zatoichi, am um, I, I, I'm sure. That either way is wrong, but I'm going to go with Zatashi. Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's a he's a masseuse, right? And he's also a swordmaster, right? And he and he's blind, and he kind of wanders around, and he's sort of a of a a bit of a I guess sort of a lone Ranger-ish kind of figure because there's this there's this intimate relationship between notions of feudal Japan and notions of the American West because of the idea that moral authority is invested in individual. Uh, violent actors, right? And in the case of of Japan and Japanese culture, it has to do with the sort of power of the swordsman as a moral agent on behalf of the shogun or bushido and Buddhism and all that stuff. And in the West, it's the cowboy bringing law to the lawless, right? And so you have the idea of this wandering warrior hero. And and Zatoichi is uh, Zatsu, I think I think it's Zatoichi, but I'm not sure. Uh, is is just, just sort of you know classic Zatoichi scene? Is he sort of like wanders into a gambling parlor? He likes gambling. He's very relaxed he's very nice he's he's he doesn't cause a lot of problems but then some people start really roughing him up and being really mean to him and then there's just like flashes of his sword right and just blood spurts and and, and they die right um,
0: <laughs> classic satoichi <laughs>
2: <laughs> and while and while donnie yen brings a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the kung fu movie but also a lot of kind of um a lot of Western religious feeling, also, and he certainly feels like more of a kind of solemn religious character than Satoichi does. But, like, there seems to be a circle, I think, where Japanese cinema influences Star Wars, and then when Star Wars is looking for uh, resonant imagery that connects with its universe, it drifts back in the general direction of Asia and kind of looks for tropes from Asian film, and doesn't seem, I don't think it made. I don't think that the the two uh, Jedi uh, Jedi Temple characters felt like distinctly Chinese, right? They felt like they were sort of part of that uh, like journey into the West, kind of like broad Asian mythology kind of thing. But I'm again, I'm not the authority on it, but I don't I don't speak out of total ignorance. Um, it's also it, it,
0: it's also like uh, uh, Donnie Yen's character and Wen Jiang's character. Um, we're a kind of fun double act, right? Like, so yeah. they, they were, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. They, I can't actually think of the, they, they struck me as kind of a, a Western you know a western uh double actor or something like that and that that like it's he he's in he exists but he doesn 't exist in in a vacuum he exists in the context uh in the context of a, of um his relationship with uh the characters called bays malbus um you know, who is not that, who is not that, that stereotype and, and who, um, and, and then also in the context of some of the, like, the religious stuff with the Force that we talked about last time, that, you know, the Force is gonna have monks, you know, it's gonna have, like, since the Force is more a religion, uh, in this than, than necessarily an innate power, um, that is harnessed by the, either the Jedi or the Sith, it's, uh, you know, it's going to have adherence, it's gonna have kind of, uh, uh, almost. Almost, um, uh, almost fanatics, and this is also as a Donatello fan among the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, my favorite weapon by far is a long stick, and so anyone who fights with a long stick is ipso facto awesome for that reason.
4: I would also add. Um... Those two characters, uh, the Donnie Yen and the Jiang character, um, and also Forrest Whitaker's character, I kind of lumped them all into sort of like the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, indigenous people of Jedha, who are all kind of like minorities, dark-skinned peoples or humans or aliens um, who are being oppressed by the local Imperial presence. Uh, it's, it's not a, a, a clean sort of uh, analogy or generalization to make there. But I, I, I do think that the, the, movie, the Star Wars movies in general do telegraph the sense of, like, the Empire is full of, like, mean – white people who are speciesist and racist and then the empire is a scrappy group of well, uh you know humans and non-humans but and more so recently uh, people of color as well who are uh, who are uh, like like green squid people (laughs)
2: people.
0: (laughs) all color i mean all colors of, of squid people there's a high incidence of tentacles uh and just incidental tentacles uh in this film
3: Although I did notice in this movie and I don't know if it means anything that like although obviously the rebel alliance is much more diverse than the Empire, you still have to be human to be an x- wing pilot. interesting, yeah, I don't know I don't know if it means any. I think it's more just let's let's just say that like the like they're built for humans, anatomy doesn't like if you're a squid person, by all means you could command the fleet. But, like, you just can't hold on to the joysticks. stakes. <laughs> mm.
4: it, it is worth noting that in The Force Awakens there are at least two, if not more, non-human characters who are piloting the, the, the Resistance X-Wings in the last battle.
0: Uh. So that I mean, you know, I don't know, the the arc of history in a galaxy long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away is long. Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> way, one of my one of my favorite pieces of fan service in this movie, and there were a lot, is that uh mm-hmm. they reuse some of the footage from Star Wars episode four in nineteen seventy seven just to show little glimpses of the pilots of the yes. X Wings. Yeah, later yeah. yeah. he made it yeah. return. They, they literally found the footage and, and used it, just being like, "Go later, standing by."
0: Definitely, yeah. Um, uh, very, very, very cool that. And and then, I mean, finally, I I I think that like the point that Mark brings up about sort of oppression and that dynamic is is important because I think that's a way. I think that that sort of thinking about oppression. Um, is a thought technology that has entered... Uh, that has entered political discourse as relates to kind of normal relations between people, like not actually being occupied by a by a hostile power, but as relates to sort of normal um, uh, uh, dynamics between people that is to say we can say that an everyday relationship has has an oppressive uh, has an oppressive dynamic and, and this and so the, the, like depicting it with the sort of the the indigenous people of Jeddah suffering. Um, under the great the great you know walker foot of the or I guess it 's the the great destroyer hovering in the air um, of the the Empire kind of makes concrete um, something about that something about that dynamic and something about uh, something is something about our sort of thought technology of of oppression there are other sort of thought technologies like a uh, uh, a discourse about order versus terror, right? Or the ability to kind of to dismiss some someone discursively by calling them an extremist, as the rebellion does to Saw. Um, that uh, right? That seems to be in our um, that that seems to be in this this film. You know that like what are the and and the sort of. The, the, the the i guess the contemporary thing that i want to point out is that the the words that you use to talk about something um uh, matter, I mean, they always did because because Star Wars is mythical and and in myths you call things by their names and you you know there 's good and there 's bad and there 's evil there 's light and there 's dark, and those things have definitions um, but But the idea in this movie is that we kind of slip into a territory where the the terms are less fixed you know one one person 's order is another person 's terror. Um, and things like uh uh things like order and terror there can be kind of a second order battle between the huh, order uh there can be a like a second level battle between those two terms and who gets to name something something and that it's it's consequential um it's consequential uh who gets to do that
2: what what instance of that in this movie is the is naming the hope right 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 like like this is the movie that gives us the new hope which I think we were believed we had believed had, would be Luke Skywalker, but it turns out is the both the Death Star plans and also the discursive technology that accompanies right the the acquisition and transmission of the Death Star plans.
0: Right, the idea that it is you a mean rebellion you mean Wi Fi? Hope what you mean Wi Fi <laughs> or satellite? <laughs> no, but like, the microwave not, not, dish. Not, not that that's, kind of oh, oh, sorry, sorry yeah um, like right. I guess i mean as you know the fr- the first film was originally called star Wars uh and later got you know kind of reconned into Star Wars episode for a new hope um, I think it 's going to have to be a new new hope right because the the hope is the hope that that uh, Jin gives them to go to go into battle um, the uh you know to sort of steal from the archive right the it 's the hope that launches the rogue. Uh, the Rogue Mission. So I. So I guess it's a new. It's a new 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 uh, hope. And uh, by the time that we get to. Uh, by the time that we get to episode four, but sorry, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to stint, um, I don't want to stint the discussion uh, that we were, we were launching off on before I, I sort of capped off the discussion that we were uh, <laughs> about to stop having uh, about the uh, about uh, you know gold leaders standing, uh, you know gold leaders standing by uh, about the um, the things like there there are all kinds of um, fan services, there are all kinds of uh uh references there are all kinds of uh, all kinds of jimmy smiths all over this movie and it's uh you know it's it is i mean it is remarkable so is it a um i mean i i don't know let's just if we can ring the changes on on uh, on some of those. One that we talked about last week was the, uh, the very strong to me reference to Boromir's, uh, spoiler alert, Boromir's death in, uh, in Fellowship of the Ring. Um, when, uh, Marvin the Paranoid Android goes down, uh, you know, after taking, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 blaster shots, you'd think they would, they would take the blaster off, stun, uh, Uh, after a certain point um i don't know were there other kind of intertextual moments either with uh either with uh previous star wars movies or with other films that that you thought were you know particularly effective or particularly consequential
1: the the first movie that came to mind for me watching this uh both in terms of kind of tone and a little bit in style was the dirty dozen because huh. we've, we've at the beginning, we've kind of got this idea of like, oh, we're going to take a convict and we're going to give her a special mission that if she pulls off, she'll get, you know, we'll, we'll let her go, you know, off on her way. Uh, and then also at the end, they're not convicts. The, the the rogue guys are not convicts, but they do have that kind of scrappy band of misfits vibe to this mission. And the mission itself is sort of similar. We're going to break into this top secret uh, bad guy fascist facility and blow up their, their secret weapon.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, I felt like there were specific sequences that seemed pulled from specific movies. Like the first sequence uh, with the farm seemed like it was from *Inglourious Bastards*, right? It was the it was the Jew Hunter scene with the milk, right? And and he comes to the farm and he tries to hide the girl and the wife gets killed and the girl runs away, right? And and that seemed very blue milk s- in this one. Oh, it's blue milk. That's yeah, true. There there even is milk. <laughs> There's even milk in this scene, although it's blue milk. Um the the, the scene where they had to reposition the uh, the the, the satellite dish in order to beam the signal and they were hanging on to the edge of the railing uh, that was very goldeneye to me right like the for england james no for me that sort of felt a little bit like the dynamic that was going on between tarkin and the director i mean i don't know if you guys don't if goldeneye is goldeneye even a movie that people reference anymore is it just out of the zeitgeist or <laughs> do you think people actually
0: well that makes it prime a uh, prime target for plundering for you know for spare parts right
2: yeah, yeah, sure, we can loot it once people yeah. have forgotten what it is. Um, you know, just take
0: everything Take everything that, uh, that's not nailed down. <laughs>
3: <laughs> a lot of the illusions that I saw were, were to really bad movies, but that's maybe because bad movies stick in my mind more. That, For instance, I thought that the scene uh, where they tried to get the Rebel Alliance to, to approve the attack and the Rebel Alliance is too politically timid to do it and they go do it anyway, that's right out of Street Fighter. <laughs> right? where, where the UN is like Jean-Claude Van Damme, you gotta step down. Um, and then Jean dare is like, like who wants to go home and who wants to get on the boat and go with me? Yeah. And then everyone's like, Yeah, let's go do it. Um, and then of course the, the scene where uh the the Death Star shoots uh, blows up the city and then the shock wave is just coming in and they can see this is massive, the ground is just like flying up everywhere, it is right out of 2012.
2: Oh, is that what that's out of, where the ground is just coming from?
3: 2012 has, like, I I think not one, not two, but three different scenes where there's, like, just, like, you know, the the world is sort of falling out from under them, and they barely get in a plane and take off right as, like, the runway falls into a bottomless pit. Right. And it's like that kind of thing where, like, they're barely outrunning the sort of, like, either the tidal wave or the sort of, like, plume of debris. But you know what? It's, sort um,
1: deep, it's all sort of deep impact where oh. there's two people, some people standing on the beach watching the the giant tidal wave coming. Oh, right. well,
4: that, yeah, that's that's, that's, that's not as, failing to run away, outrun the end of the world and the impending doom, right? That, that's, a, that's kind that's of its own subgenre question, of uh, scenes, yeah.
3: it's this, It's the couple that's holding each other on the beach just sort of watching the destruction just sort of, like, come in on them.
0: Yeah. Oh! Oh! But yeah. But uh, if if you're uh, if you're a couple, uh, you know, standing uh, in front of that in front of that nuclear blast, you know, come on, who are you? Come on, Pete, who are you?
2: Oh, are you, t- are you talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis and True Lies? Yeah. <laughs> Sarah I like the deep impact more cuz it has a certain gro- like I was exp- the the shot that it was set up with the with the death star explosion going off and and the the light coming towards them I expected it was going to be the scene where like Tom Arnold doesn't look at the light and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis avoid looking at the light by making out on the bridge uh, but uh, it didn't it seemed to have a little more pathos than that so I'm glad you guys brought up deep impact as possibly the real reference in that particular scene like mission impossible um, Oh, we got to go in and we got to get the file and we got to climb the thing like Tom Cruise does in all his movies when he climbs the thing like that
1: kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. But uh, sometimes he climbs the inside of the thing and sometimes he climbs the outside of the thing. So that's, that's why
1: there's so many. Of them. Yeah, that's because there's so many permutations. Sometimes the top, like the like the train in the first movie.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, can I ask what was the point of the hatch at the top of the archives that had the sharp edges on it that just closed and opened? Was that a malfunction <laughs> or was that hatch there like to kill the birds? Like if a bird is going to get in the archive, it better get in fast or it's getting killed. It's a ventilator.
0: Yeah, it's a ventilation. uh or, or uh, yeah, it's the the ventilation thing. It's very important that they be cooled. That they, uh, you know, that the That's archives a be cooled. Threat,
2: right? It's a tropical climate.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, you can't let too much of that. You can't let too much of that that uh, tropical <laughs> tropical air into the into the thing. Um, it, so it's. I mean, I don't know. There's there's a lot going on. Is this. And and a lot of different. I mean, I, well, I guess all action movies, more or less, that, that we've uh, that we've referenced. I mean, is that what this is? Is this just a mashup? Is it a genre mashup? What like is is there a, a what kind of uh, genre uh, movie is this? Do we have? I mean, do we have a, a read on it? Because it feels different from the old Star Wars movies. Is is there a kind of unique genre that we can kind of pin on this movie?
4: Well, I would say pr- pr- primarily I, I would slot it into the-, the war movie category, in particular the one where the, the-, the lead characters die um, and you uh, take a lot from their great sacrifice for the cause, right? Which is uh, obviously a huge difference from the original Star Wars movies, which are almost kind of uh, put in a in a genre all into themselves, right? You know, that particular blend of science fiction and fantasy and uh and, and the heroic acts right the, the star wars are not war movies i think we are probably all in agreement on that but rogue one is through and through a war movie in particular a type of war movie where your leads die um in a very noble way
2: hmm. Yeah, you could put the Star Wars movies in a genre by themselves, along with seventy five percent of all the movies that get made ever. They all go on this genre,
0: right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> of like, oh, you're the chosen one, and you gotta save the universe.
0: Well, I guess <laughs> right? yeah. Cho- I mean, chosen one movies, but it's it's also I mean, there's more to it than that. There's it's a it's a question of of tone, right? And I think like the way. Uh, uh, Mm, the way that that um the star wars movies deal with tone is they they communicate a certain stateliness i mean both the the good guys and the bad guys have have a certain stateliness even if you're on dagobah and everything is is crappy and yoda's pulling your your uh ride out of the swamp right like there is you know mystical music and the the uh there's a sense of real moment and a sense of almost ceremony to that act uh, as much as you know, all the the uh, imperial troopers lined up in rank and file, you know, convey a sense of moment and ceremony and kind of grandiosity, right? Like, like there's that. And the thing that makes this, uh, the thing that makes this a a, a war movie, um, in the way that Mark is talking about, I think is a is a focus on disorder and a focus on kind of a breakdown uh, of. Um, Uh, you know, a breakdown of those kind of grandiose structures that the other films seem to focus on.
2: I would also identify with, and I don't know if there's a film genre that structurally matches with this, but I would say that it's kind of like a novel, right? Which is a weird thing to identify as a genre because we don't really think of it as a genre, right? But it is right. Like sort of a broad sweeping historical romantic novel I mean, it's historical fiction would be another way of looking at it, right? And this is a, a historical novel romance, a romance with like a capital R, I guess, um, about like what happened in the war, right? And it's the story of uh, – which is why there's so many references to the other movies, right? It's almost like this is this is the story of Rogue One and how it came to be. Uh, and it starts with an orphan, like all good novels do, right? Like because Dickens said that it's easier to write stories about not uh, write novels about orphans because things, you know, then they still get they get to make their own decisions. Oh, well, she's not really an orphan. She has, yeah. Also, uh, or she
0: also. Yeah. The also, the like the the really lax safe harbor laws in the in the Galactic Empire, right? You can just <laughs> everyone drops their kids off at a fire station or something. There are no happy families <laughs> in Star Wars.
2: But, like, it starts with their childhood and with their estrangement from their parents, and it ends with their death for the cause. You know, is it, like, sort of like, what, is it Scarlet Pimpernel's sort of, I uh, do Two Cities, eh. You know, like, something that, that, I mean, you mentioned, Matt mentioned Les Miserables as his own personal empire, hell. Oh boy. This isn't the least Les Miserables movie that is, there's been, <laughs> right? Uh. <laughs>
3: Yeah. Right, you can you can imagine the scene at the end where like you know they they're all dead on the planet, but then everyone in Rogue One sort of like appears in a dream, just like all singing together, just seeing the vision of the Death Star blowing up in the future because of the sacrifices they made. So, well,
1: you could you could totally see this as an in-universe like recruitment film for the Rebellion, because it's basically <laughs> like you know do, they did your part, now you do yours. Yeah do like, you they, do
0: you want to know more? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, The other thing I was thinking of was like, what did you do in the Star War, daddy? You know, know, where it's, uh, yeah, tales of sort of... Um, Tales of I sold
2: pod racers. What
0: do you think I did? That's uh. how we afford this tent. Whoa. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> um, well, uh, so uh, we get a uh, we get a few uh, familiar faces. Uh, we don't get a few familiar faces. We get uncanny uh, representations of a few familiar pa- faces. Okay. Let's.
2: Can I throw in my favorite familiar face? because we haven't talked about it yet. Yeah. My favorite- so and I don't I don't even know the guy's names, but there's it really we've talked a bunch about scenes in this movie that recontextualize scenes that you see in A New Hope and make them mean something different than what they previously meant. And and I love how when they go to Jeddah and they're walking around in Jeddah, they bump into those two guys. Right. Like the, the guy who's sort of like the, Wolfman the, kind of guy, but the, not oh, the really guy like the guy who's one seven systems. Face.
1: What? The guy who's, like, wanted on seven systems or something I like that.
2: On, I've got the death penalty on seven yeah. systems or whatever. Like just
3: yesterday, I almost got blown up by Jetta. That's how exactly. bad I <laughs> Like, it like, like, The guy
2: gets bumped, and the guy's like, hey, watch it. And then, and, the, and his friend is like, easy, easy, right? Like, chill out. There's no need. And then the planet freaking blows up, and presumably they only barely escape the planet blowing up, and they flee to the edge of the galaxy to Tatooine. They go to a bar. They sit down. They're like, oh my god what a week this has been the worst and then some guy freaking bumps into them and he's like okay this time i'm gonna get mad and the friend's like you know what this time i'm not gonna stop you and then he gets freaking arm chopped off by obi-wan kenobi and it's hardly fair right it's hardly fair that after those guys after everything that they've been through that that's what happens to them uh i just got a real kick out of that yeah it
0: really does it it makes it really gives them a backstory and makes them sympathetic (laughs) i feel like they're really three-dimensional characters now (laughs)
2: Well, they're practical effects at the very least.
0: Well, speaking of uh, chopping off limbs, I mean, Vader is here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, no, but, but 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 here's the question about, about Vader that I have. Is it important that it be Darth Vader, right? Like, could this have been another... Uh, like Count Dooku? Could yeah, or... Cal- yes yeah, or, or,
3: or, or did he do. play any role i mean here's i'm gonna make a bold prediction that we may never know the answer to which is that the scene the first vader scene where the where the guy goes to castle vader um he goes he goes <laughs> to the, the uh christopher lee's house in the two towers yeah. uh, was part of the reshoots and was not in the original script because it serves no narrative function whatsoever and you can take it out and it doesn't change anything except um, it's awesome but you know, I, I think that like literally the original script was like, Darth Vader's not in the movie until the very last minute where you hear the breathing and the lightsaber turns on and it's like, whoa, Darth Vader is in the movie. And I guess that, and I can totally imagine the executives are like, you know what, people are going to know Vader's in the movie and they're going to be waiting. And so like let's just give him a Vader scene early and so it could be a surprise when he comes back at the end. Um, because that, that scene is like, and, and I do think this is a critical question because I think that like we should try to judge the movie on how well it stands on its own two feet, and not as like a, a, a fan service or nostalgia. And I, I do sort of feel like the Vader scenes are only there because people like Darth Vader.
1: Hmm. I mean, I, I, mean, think, I, love, I, I love. I think it. you're you're right to say that those two scenes serve a very different function because you have to have the Vader scene at the end of the of the movie because the whole idea is that you know in five minutes he's going to be chasing Leia in Episode Four. So like he has to be at the scene of the crime, so to speak. So that he can be chasing Leia in at the beginning of, of episode four.
2: Yeah, and that because then if you don't have that, it has to you have to change it, right? If you take Vader out, you have to replace that with something else. But then that that because the idea of because I've seen movies that are nostalgia and fan service, like I've seen a lot of them. We've seen a lot of them. Uh, what's what's a good example of a movie that's just very transparent nostalgia and service? Oh,
0: I don't know. Terminator
2: was, Genesis. Yes. <laughs> what was another one, Matt?
0: I I saw uh, I saw a trailer for Fate of the Furious before I saw. <laughs>
2: I not, for the first time, not feeling that excited. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Wow. Uh, But yeah, Terminator Genesis is a great example, right? Even Jurassic World, I would say, is like, does not justify its existence, except insofar as much as people want to watch dinosaurs and dinosaur fights in movies, and also because people remember Jurassic Park, right? And like, so much of the stuff in Jurassic Park, in Jurassic World, is just like- Hey, Jurassic Park is a thing that happened, right? The prequels have tons of fan service, but it's not necessarily good fan service. And and it's just like this movie I felt like was was the parts that were fan service were making an engagement and a commentary on the existing material and connecting the stories in a way that felt deeper than a lot of fan service feels. Um, maybe just because it was such an integral part of how the tension in the narrative was just, was heightened and resolved. Maybe that's what it boils down to, is that like the fan service was really had a lot of tension to it. And usually fan service doesn't have tension because it doesn't have stakes. Because it's just something that existed before, right? The, the stakes are from outside the movie. I guess it's like if you didn't know who these people were, would you be as excited about the last scene? I don't know. But what well, I will say is that if you take Vader out of the movie— you probably have to figure out some way of incorporating into the movie the idea that the empire has some sort of supernatural bad aspect to it. Maybe you just don't, maybe you don't, it just stands alone as like a tragedy about a bunch of people who are trying to make do and then it didn't really work and everybody died. And like now the rebels have an advantage, but like we kind of know that the war doesn't really have good guys on either side. And so like, the the rebels have the advantage, but is that even a good thing that the rebels have the advantage? Because we know that, you know, I mean, Jimmy Smith is great and all, but like, we don't really know how he is as a governor. Yeah, there,
0: there isn't a there isn't really a sense that uh, that there's like a dark light dichotomy in this. Right. That's not the that's not the kind of main characters um right. like, inner
3: content so is a grumpy old man, but he's not necessarily evil. Right. I mean, like, you know what? I, I feel bad about saying this because they do like blow up. A city for no reason other than to like test whether the weapon works <laughs> so like they're not they're not just just bureaucrats they are they, they do have a sort of callous relationship to human life but i do I do think it's interesting that like you're saying that the reason why Vader is important is because he is so obviously he lives on a lava planet in a black castle yeah. you know, it's like oh he's if if darth vader is a high up in this organization this organization must be like not just like a bureaucratic nightmare but just straight up evil
2: i mean the way that we described it last week when we talked about it was that like darth vader's appearance at the end is a is a switch it's it's a it's a switcheroo because the question that's being posed during a lot of the movie is is the force real right? And we know the answer is yes, but seeing it it for itself, the movie doesn't really show us all that many times that the force is a real thing, and it can't be explained away by other circumstances. And we, for, for, the, for the way that they all die engulfed in light all the time and the way that she carries the, the sort of force, we're, we're led to believe in this. The new chlorians are those Jedi dilithium crystals, right, that supposedly, I guess, what, focus the energy of the universe or of life, right? They have force energy in them um we're going into like a full metal alchemist situation where we're using like crystalline life energy uh that has been gathered from living organisms to power death weapons but like you know she carries one of those crystals around her neck the jedi planet was being mined for them they're being used in the death star with vader in the movie that kind of has a purpose because you sort of expect somebody to turn out to be a jedi at the end but no we get a sith instead that kills everybody and we kind of talked about this last week and without vader then there's no payoff and it just becomes a, a subplot about Donnie Yen's character and whether Donnie Yen's character is really – really, whether he's true, real or not. And it would be sort of like any Western or any vampire movie where one of the people in it happens to be a priest, right? And it's like, oh, maybe – and like the priest has a Bible in their pocket and they got shot in the Bible, right? And it's like, oh, maybe God is real, right? And like that's, <laughs> sort of the, that's sort of like the way – or like in polar – It's like, Express, it's like signs, right? what's up
3: it's like signs where like all those glasses of water turn out to have a purpose right
2: (laughs) exactly and and the idea is that that the rogue that rogue one comes down really really hard on the question of like are supernatural things real and it comes down super hard at the end and it comes down bad right because the supernatural thing that is real is darth vader and he's coming to kill you and everybody right and it's like They have the luxury of using Darth Vader, who's one of the best things that they could possibly use to create that kind of effect from an audience. But the question is, if they hadn't used Darth Vader, could they have been challenged to come up with something that worked within the world that's established in the movie well right cuz
0: this is what Matt was saying like we we have to judge this on its own on its own yeah. merits right like we can't um we can't just sort of t- or, or 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 do we i mean i i guess that that proposition shouldn't be be left unchallenged because like it's a movie uh, with one fader and zero Skywalkers. Well, there's one Skywalker, uh, <laughs> kind of, kind of sensationally, uh, at the end who is one of the, um, kind of uncanny versions of the uh, CGI versions of the real actors. Uh, some, some of whom are dead uh, who, uh, you know, appear, who appear in, in this film. So like before we, before we maybe close with, uh, cause it seems like we're converging on that final moment of the film, Vader's uh, red lightsaber, the kind of relentlessness uh, of his walk down the hallway, the kind of, um, Towards the closing, I mean, towards the closing door. Oh, uh, sorry, brief digression. On the overview for uh, The Force Awakens, Pete said that the archetypal image of Star Wars is running towards a closing door. And, and I
2: did not see that in this movie yet. So you know what? There you go.
0: No, it, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. It, you absolutely did. There was the, the. I feel like the the ground of Jeddah, just flying into the air and kind of folding down onto itself in a kind of tidal wave of Earth uh, as they sort of fly towards that was a version of that of that image and not getting crushed by that. The shield closing uh, as the uh, you know as what was it red squad or blue squadron was was flying through um, was was a version of that. And there was a there was a repetition with the difference at the end where Vader is walking down a hallway towards a door that they're trying to close to throw the uh, three point five inch floppy disk that has <laughs> the Death Star <laughs> plans on it through. Or it, you know what it's probably like a Zip drive or a jazz disc because like a, I guess, it's a DAT tape. Yeah, right? because those things are. Uh, uh, it's it's very clear. They say it in the film. These files are huge. There's so much information to transfer. Right? Is uh, is a version of that? And I feel like we, uh, as we can uh, walk down the hallway towards the closing door of this podcast. I mean, I feel like like um, all of these things. Uh, the lack of Skywalkers. Um, well, I mean, two. I guess uh, I said one before, but two. And Anakin and uh, and Leia Um, and the uh, you know the CGI versions of real actors are converging in that in that uh, in that final scene so let's uh, I mean let's let's maybe end there Um, how, how does this scene really tie the room together. Does it? Does I mean? Do you feel like it's a? a I mean, we're talking about ways in which it's a uh, a good ending, uh, a good ending for the film. Both the relentless, uh, both the relentlessness of Vader, Vader as a as a malevolent, mm-hmm. unstoppable supernatural force. Um, does does that change for you when when you see Leia at the end? Did you expect to see Leia? I mean, she was foreshadowed pretty heavily, but uh, by Jimmy Smith. But but. um uh did, was it a surprise when you saw her and do you feel like it it changed the uh, outcome the uh, the f- final meaning of the film for you matt you were about to get started?
3: I mean, I, I definitely ever since they announced this film, I felt like there was a pretty good chance that the last scene brought it full circle to this ship, to Princess Leia. Th- I thought there was a, actually a good chance that the last shot of this movie could be the very first shot of A New Hope, and they could literally bring it full circle um, that way. Um, I do think, you know, considering the last scene with Vader, I think what it, one of the roles it might play is rebalancing the stakes and making it clear that the Empire still has the upper hands. Because I think that, like, at the end of this movie, if you had not seen any other Star Wars movies, you might figure that, like, oh, the rest is easy. Because we know that the Death Star has a critical flaw. We have the plans for it to find out what the – you know, how do we exploit this? Um, you know, now it's really just a question of interpreting the plans and then boom. But then, like, the existence of Darth Vader is like, whoa, how are we going to take these guys out? Like, what what chance do we stand? Because we don't have the Force, or do we? Um, and so that, like, it's a sort of a necessary reminder that, like, although things temporarily are looking up for the rebellion, um, there is a lot of problems on the horizon.
2: And doesn't everybody on the fleet there pretty much get
1: killed?
3: Well, like, they the whole can't fleet because, just gets wrecked, uh, right?
1: You know, Gold Leader and Red Leader, you know, are going to be back at Yavin for the the desktop. Oh, that's battle. true. So they have to make it
2: back. So yeah, some I think, of the people, I think make you it it see,
1: out. some of the fleet successfully jump to hyperspace before. Uh, before Vader rolls in. But it in.
2: does definitely strengthen the idea that the rebellion is on the back foot and is in deep trouble, right? This idea that so many of like that Admiral Green Squid is just totally blown up. Um, because yeah. otherwise he, it's Akbar. That's why it's Akbar later, right? Because this guy was a, presumably Akbar's boss, and Akbar got his job. <laughs> or Akbar's in Jedi, so that's much later. So yeah. maybe he, but I, he got to work through.
3: I do think that, like, considering the last scene and, and how it how it really uh, connects the the, the uh, this movie and the original trilogy and ties them together, I think this concept of hope is obviously critical. They're they're not hiding it or anything. Whereas that in the original trilogy, we pretty much know what the plan is at all times, right? Like Princess Leia has the Death Star plans as long as those Death Star. Plans plans are in play that's that's the plan that's how the rebels are going to win and in the uh you know in return of the jedi it's like all right here's the plan about how we're going to blow up the death star whereas that for most of this movie there is no really conceivable way that the rebel alliance is going to be able to do squat that the rebel alliance is seems like a bad idea and seems like a pipe dream and you know really it's 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 not immediately clear and so that that's the big difference between where the rebel alliance is at the beginning of this movie where they're fighting because they can't imagine not fighting even though they also can't imagine any way to win and the beginning of a new hope where they have an actual prayer of winning right. although it seems like a distant prayer
2: and oh, they and they also have kind of a, a a a role model an example right they have a story of rogue one that they can use. That well, presumably between this movie and A New Hope, the Re- Rebel Alliance has some sort of kind of cultural uh, agreement. They're like, oh wow, okay, things have happened, things have changed. Maybe they don't disagree as much. They've had their Battle of Saratoga, right, where they've have actually taken something of value from the Empire. I don't know. I think, you have,
1: I, yeah. I think you have. to assume the existence of the Death Star as the catalyzing event for that. <laughs> that but, Fair enough. I mean, that's serious. I mean, at the that. Up until – and the, the dissolution of the Senate. That's probably the other thing that happens in episode four that kind of – if there were any kind of people that were on the more moderate side of the rebellion, like, well, maybe we can work this out politically or write it out or, or the Senate can be a check on the emperor's power, uh, that, that pretty much goes out the window and the uh, Senate is dissolved and the super weapon starts flying around.
0: I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like uh, somewhere around a you know somewhere around a conference table, some uh, some alliance member will bang their fist on the table and say, "Just remember the legacy of Rogue One." And in this information-starved uh, galaxy, someone else around the table will say, "Rogue One. I thought they were a myth." all right uh well i think it's all true all of it (laughs) (laughs) I, i we've approached the closing door of this podcast so thank you very much uh to the overthinking of podcasters for uh Following this, uh, this epic story of, of Rogue One to our, uh, inevitable death on the beaches of, no, 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 to the, to the conclusion, uh, of this after two weeks of podcasting about it. If you have more to say about Rogue One, about any of the things that we've talked about, the, uh, world building of Star Wars, uh, the, uh, the woke or not wokeness of this film, some of the, the parallels with our world, uh, Star Wars as a war movie, um for the first time uh or uh some of the some of the uses of Darth Vader uh of the uh the in especially in that that final scene for for establishing stakes please um get uh on overthinking it and and head to the comment section and join the conversation which I'm sure will continue uh to be great there in the comment section um thanks very much also for using the uh, overthinking it gift guide and you can continue to use it uh to uh to to organize all of your returns and uh, get yourself something that you actually like for uh, for this holiday season. Um, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking Podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Deserve.